This podcast may contain illicit language. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have three stories. 600 Seconds by Vincent Louis Carella, Mother Country by Nick Antosca, and Broomstick Limbo by Craig Turleson. 600 Seconds, written and read by Vincent Louis Carella. Listening time, 10 minutes. Vincent Louis Carella, 600 Seconds. The pilot's voice is calm and soothing. It is the voice of Sunday morning radio shows, the quiet gospels, blue note jazz, and when the voice tells you that you're falling now and that the aircraft cannot recover, that in 10 minutes you will be attempting a difficult water landing, you think to yourself that it's more than just a voice suited for cockpit banter and control towers and passing mentions of spectacular canyons below. It is a voice that reassures a wife somewhere that he will fly safe, It is a voice that reads to children in a dim room as they prepare for bed. It is a voice that tells an old family dog, a golden retriever perhaps, to lie down and be quiet at the foot of the bed. It is a marvelous voice. It is godlike. You're lucky to have this voice deliver the news that in ten minutes it will all be over and you will likely feel no pain. The voice from the cockpit once gone leaves an emptiness inside that is soon replaced by a voice of your own and you listen to that voice. You are transfixed by it and amazed at how clear it all suddenly becomes. You will never hold your daughter again. You will never kiss your wife. You will never look into their eyes or feel their skin or hear them laugh or see them smile again. Never. You will never own that muscle car or turn your face into a warm breeze off the sea. Your toes have wallowed on their last sandy shore and you know that everyone around you is thinking much the same. To your right sits a perfect stranger not weeping as you would expect, but smiling, holding your hand. She tells you that she's widowed and childless, that she has nothing left to care for, nothing to miss but the act of missing itself, and this is the worst part of living in the minutes before you die. Memory. You remember a baseball glove you once owned. You remember the slippery feeling of a small snake. You remember the cold air and the high Sierras, your breath misty and almost blue. This is what you do when you've accepted death. You remember strange things. You remember a U-shaped magnet you had as a boy and how you loved the little force that sucked up thumbtacks and three-penny nails. You remember an owl pellet with a mouse skull inside and a certain seashell you kept at your bedside table and a well-coiffed blonde woman in Kauai who stopped in the middle of traffic to check the identity of a dead cat in the road. You remember the soft sound the television would make just before the commercial while your mother watched General Hospital on the days you stayed home sick from school. You remember fishing with your father for snapper off the side of the little sloop you named Topsy and how he breaded them and fried them in a blackened cast iron pan over a cook fire on the beach. You remember your first hot dog at Yankee Stadium the night Gidry struck out the record 18. You remember the whisper of wind in a tree. You remember the warm and mazy Sundays of your youth, macaroni and stickball. You see your mother's face when she was young and your thin and dark-haired father. You see your big brother when he was 12 with his missing front teeth. You see these things like photographs. Your life blows like leaves before you. Leaves caught in the wind. In 10 minutes it will all be over, and at this speed your death will be painless and quick. It's not the impact that scares you now, it's the weight and the pictures in your mind. The things you will never see again. The sounds you will never hear. 
the words left unspoken. You hear Simon and Garfunkel. You can smell the baby's hair. You see her eyes, eyes that have not yet assumed their final color. You will never know what shade they will become. And there's the unsaid, the promises you will not keep, the ambitions unrealized, your hopes, your dreams, your pledges to God, all of which have exceeded the limit of this fragile craft. All have overreached, and now you're at the mercy of yourself. There's only the issue of forgiveness and absolution, but your sins cannot be atoned in ten minutes, no matter how many Hail Marys you recite. And how many would that be in ten minutes? If you pray quickly, you can say it in ten seconds, and there are ten minutes left. Ten minutes, six hundred seconds, sixty Hail Marys at most. Six hundred seconds. The time it takes you to smoke a cigarette. The time it takes you to nod off in the hammock. In 600 seconds, you can run a mile, cook an omelet, or row the little dinghy to the other side of the lake. It takes about 600 seconds to cook the macaroni al dente your mother told you, and 600 seconds to read your daughter's favorite book aloud, if you do all the pirate voices, and the boy's voice too, and allow for the pauses, so that it sounds real and wonderful like an old-time radio drama, so that she yearns for stories, and craves more books, and becomes a reader like you were as a boy, and perhaps a writer as you hope to become. Not so that you can make money or be renowned, but so that you can simply read your own words back to yourself and wonder at them the way she wonders when you read to her at night on the side of her bed, with her tiny fingers around your forearm and her eyes glued to the pictures, reciting the story from memory and smiling at herself because she knows how she pleases you. 600 seconds. Of course, now there is much less than that, but your mind is fixed on that number. Into the valley of death rode the brave 600. Daddy, can you play with me? Give me ten minutes, sweetheart, ten minutes. You walk out of restaurants because the wait for a table is ten minutes and you're hungry now and why should you wait ten minutes even though the act of finding the next restaurant and getting there and parking and being seated will certainly take longer. You take a detour to work to save ten minutes sitting in traffic in an air-conditioned leather-appointed car. You leave ten minutes early so you won't miss the first ten minutes of the game. You set your watch ten minutes fast so you won't be late for meetings or for commuter trains. Sweetheart, ten more minutes and then you're up to bed. Daddy, I don't want to go to bed. Ten minutes, honey, ten. Now the praying begins in earnest. How many Hail Marys do you have left? You say the Hail Marys because it has always been your favorite from the time when you were a boy, in the catechism, from the time when you took the papery host with a clean conscience because you didn't even know what a conscience was, from the time when you went to confession and all that you had to suffer was a boy's guilt, from candy store thievery, and swear words, and forbidden fondling in the woods. You say the Hail Marys because you can pray to a woman more easily than you can pray to a man, and because here is a face you can see as clearly as your own mother's, and a voice you can hear as clearly as the voice of the pilot on the intercom. The Lord is with thee. So you say the Hail Marys because they are all you have left now, and there's no judgment from her. She's a woman, and as a woman understands pain in ways a man simply cannot. You pray to her because she's a woman. A woman gave you life and a woman raised you. It's fitting that a woman receive you unto death. She is not God, but she's the most blessed of any mortal being. In your mind, you have created your own brand of faith in which she, the Virgin Mother, receives both your gratitude and desperate pleas for forgiveness, delegating each to its appropriate heavenly agent. You believe that she can intercede on your personal behalf. You believe that she can soften your sins and explain your weaknesses to the Heavenly Father and thus lessen your punishment the way your own mother would defend you when you were a boy. Don't worry, sweetheart, I'll speak to your father. And she, 
The Virgin Mother can speak to her Son, Jesus Christ, to grant you both protection from your weakness and forgiveness for your sins. You're his older brother. You need to look out for him. And she, the Virgin Mother, holds the Holy Ghost in the palm of her hand and thus the power to change things, to fix things, to make things right again and to set you back on the path from which you have always strayed and will stray from again. It's a simple faith you've constructed for yourself, the faith of a boy. And it's fitting now that you return to it just before you leave and that you return to boyhood itself where the only thing that mattered was a properly oiled baseball glove where your biggest concern was finding a candle stub so that the runners on your flexible flyer would glide smooth down the big hill they called Old Glory, where you'd take it again and again until well after dusk, with your toes numb and the cuffs of your Levi's frozen and the sound of your mother's voice calling you to dinner over the hills of snow. And you hoped it would be warm pasta on those nights. You hoped it would be macaroni. Of the 600 seconds, you know not how many remain. Not many, though. Not many. There's no screaming on the aircraft, no ranting, and you're surprised you have taken it so well and that they have too. Some are quietly weeping. One has a Bible open and the widow beside you has a rosary in her hands. Some stare at photographs from their wallets. You hear prayers spoken in other languages. A Muslim man is singing something old and beautiful and outside of the tiny window the surface of the sea shines like ice. The sea rushes beneath the plain and it rises up, a great swell, the tip of the wing tilted slightly and blazing white like the wing of an ocean bird, like the wing of a gull, as you remember how those fine birds would glide along so close to the gunwale of the little sloop that you could reach out and almost touch them. But of course you never could, for they would bank off and swoop away from you, and the jib sheet would slip from your fingers and spill out all of your wind. The wind. The drone of the engines is like the rush of the wind. Yes, that's what it's like. An urgent rushing, fast and fierce, like a whole life blown invisible, a lifetime. Birth to death in 600 seconds. Ten minutes. Plenty of time to brew a cup of coffee. Plenty of time to come about in a little sloop and find the wind. And this is where you are again, on the sea. To this you have returned, as you have always done, to the dark, swirling, hammering sea. The End Vincent Lewis Corella has stumbled upon the ability to channel the voices of the dead by using a Uniball Gel Impact 1mm pen. Corella's forthcoming novel, The Serpent Box, published by Harper Perennial, is due out in spring 2007. Mother Country, written by Nick Antosca, read by Mark Rushton. Listening time, two minutes. 3 a.m. The hotel suite is quiet. The commander-in-chief sleeps. Rest is needed. In the morning, a speech. A defense of military aggression. From the armchair, I watch him. The first lady has a separate suite. She will not sleep in bed with him anymore. Last time, she had to wear a turtleneck for a week. In the other room, a secret service man dozes on the red divan. Another lurks in the dark beside the curtains. For this I leave my wife and kids alone for weeks. During the stressful times I must be with him every night. They say no one else calms his terrors like I do. Now he is silent and still, but soon, sometime before dawn, he will howl himself awake, lips pulled back in horror, 
striking helplessly at invisible things, maybe strangling his pillow again. He will be in tears. Not the silent weeping of men, but the crocodile tears, the huge, wet, gored-out sobs of an infant. I'll hold him. Little dogs come to me, he'll say, little dogs biting with their teeth. Or, lawn gnomes, lawn gnomes again. This may seem funny to you, but it's not funny at all. It affects every one of us. The one that frightens him the most is the dream with the monks, the naked monks of indeterminate religion who encircle him. Somehow blood is involved, and the moon, and popsicles. Exactly what is done to him he will not say, but it causes screaming. It certainly does that. A Bible lies beside the bed at all times, reassuring him that he is with us and will protect. Waking up, he usually thinks I'm his mother, so I hold him, and we pray. Yes, when he wakes, I hold him, and we pray. The End Nick Antosca was born in New Orleans, went to college in Connecticut, and lives in New York. His first novel, Fires, will be published this winter by Impetus Press. Broomstick Limbo, written and read by Craig Turlson. Listening time, five minutes. Broomstick Limbo, by Craig Turlson. It's the color I remember. An egg yolk, yellow broomstick, a bright orange t-shirt that said Crush poplar leaves in the July sun, and blood that ran along a pale leg and disappeared into emerald grass. There were three of us, all nine years old, walking back from the pool. Paul had a big bag of salt vinegar chips, the kind that made your mouth go numb. Brian had a bag of those damn strawberry marshmallows that stained your lips like some cheap lipstick from the Met store. My tongue, a deep purple from the giant sweetheart, buzzed as we passed the RCMP headquarters and took the last hill before my street. In my backyard, we rested against the tall poplar, the one that stood sentinel-like and looked out to the barren prairie behind my yard. I don't remember what we talked about or what got us onto the subject of limbo. Who knows why kids say what they say. We should do it, Paul said. You got a long stick? It's got to be pretty long, Brian said with his red-stained lips. I don't know if they talk like that, it's hard to recall the exact conversation, but the sounds come back. The lawn had its own hum that drifted up and around us. It got louder as we became quieter. A car or a half-ton whipped by on the gravel road that separated me from the prairie. It would drown out the other sounds, and then they would wash back in. I used to sit in the backyard and just listen to the thrum. Wind rustling through shafts of fireweed came across the road and mingled with crickets and dragonflies and bullfrogs that skittered through the grass as they tried to escape the mower. That's the sound that comes back the most. The mower. My dad had fired it up just when we got back outside of the broom handle. Fired was a good word for it. It belched thick black smoke as it chugged along, my father in faded cutoffs urging it through the thick grass. I didn't really want to do the limbo. Maybe it was too hot, or it bugged me how Brian started to do this boom-da-boom-da-boom -boom noise. Even at nine, he thought he was an expert on things. You gotta have a drum. He had to say it loud to be heard over the mower. You go first, Paul pointed at me. Brian, with those damn lips, grinned. Why me? Brian's drum sound joined with the mower sound, and the sinister feeling sort of swelled up in me. 
The two of them held the yellow broom handle. Paul swayed his head back and forth to Brian's beat. Limbo. There's something else about that word. Something darker than just dancing. Something other than just trying to bend your body close to the ground. Uh, guys, uh, maybe... I started to say we shouldn't do this. We were messing with something I didn't understand. Some weird religion thing. Something that made me think of demons and fire. Come on, do it! Brian said between drumbeats. He was the one with the crush shirt. I stared at those white letters against a background that looked like it was already on fire. Brian boomed louder. There was a clack and a grind and then nothing but Brian booming, soft, under his breath. I knew the mower threw stones once in a while. I'd heard my father swear when one bounced off his jeans. Before I turned my head, I had an image of these rusty blades catapulting rocks at bare-legged people. Paul dropped his end of the stick. Roy, my father called to me. Go get Winnie. I just stared at the silent moor and my father and his jean cutoffs. I watched the line of blood thicken and then drip and then gush onto the ground. I wondered how a stone could do that, or even if it was a stone. What lay hidden in our grass that could rip open flesh like that? I barely remember how I got next door or how out of breath I told my neighbor she had to come next door real fast or how the ambulance came and drowned out all the other noises. My father lost a lot of blood in a short time, and he limped for a few weeks. That was about it. I do remember that afternoon going into the backyard and slamming that yellow broomstick against the tree until it snapped. Even as a kid, I felt some faraway connection to people that danced around orange fires that shot sparks into indigo skies. It's the color that comes back again. We shouldn't do things that we don't know anything about. I thought that then, I think it now. And I remember how the stone that the mower threw sat on our mantle for a lot of years. Its jagged edge reminded me of the thick black stitches that laced up my dad's leg. It reminded me of things that I shouldn't do. And it reminded me of a guilt that, though unwarranted, after all these years, I still can't shake. Craig Turrelson's fiction has appeared in Thieves' Jargon, Right Side Up, Thirst for Fire, and other literary journals. He was a finalist in Glimmer Train's 2005 Short Story Award for New Writers. His illustration and fiction website can be found at turlson.com. Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off. Copyright Bound Off and the respective authors. All rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories.